You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hi everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack Curling Podcast. On this week's episode, we preview the 2023 Men's World Championship taking place next week in Ottawa. We discuss the 2023 Women's World Championship with Team Canada's coach. And we chat with Emily Deschaines and Austin Snyder, two young curlers who had the honor of representing Canada at the recent World Junior Curling Championships. Hello everyone, thank you for joining me this week. Once again, my name is Frank Rock. My first guest this week is a familiar voice to listeners of the From the Hack podcast, Olympian Hans Fraunlaub, who will be in Ottawa calling the action for the World Curling Federation at the Men's Worlds. Join me to preview this year's World Championship. Hans, before we jump into our preview of the Men's World Championship, I want to take you back a few days to discuss the Women's Worlds. Uh, what is there left to say about Team Terenzoni, who not only won a fourth straight World Championship, but did it without losing a single game in a dominating performance. Well, yeah, I think I said during our preview show that, uh, you know, also Ben Ternzoni and Alina Petz do is win world championships. And boy, oh boy, uh, what a performance and what a winning streak. You know, I think, what is it, 38 consecutive wins, I think now? Something like world, that, yeah. World championship level. I mean, that's not just you know, amazing in, in the curling realm, but it's kind of the really, you know, amazing in the sport realm at, at that kind of elite level of competition. So yeah, just an incredibly uh, deserved and uh, impressive performance. It's a fantastic team and they just find ways to win. I think the final was a good example of that. There was a lot of talk during the women's world, Hans, about the quality of the ice surface. What did you hear from your contacts who were on site in Sweden? Was the ice a problem or was it simply a case of some teams adjusting to the ice more quickly than others? Yeah, I think it's probably a bit more the latter than the former. There's no question that the ice conditions were variable. I think that was quite clear. Uh, but yeah, again, you're talking about uh, Terenzoni's team. I mean, look at their shooting percentages. Uh, they certainly weren't struggling with the ice. Um, so I think, you know, reading ice and ice conditions, it's a bit of a lost art, I think, because uh, quite often they're so consistent that you don't get any variability. Uh, the arena that they were playing at in Sweden was a you know, very large building, very high roof. And so and I'm not making excuses for the ice techs, but, you know, it can be it's that's the kind of building where ice conditions can vary uh, time of day, you know, heat of the day. Um, so. If if you can't make adjustment to ice conditions, you're going to struggle if the ice conditions are changing. And I think that was probably what we saw in Sweden, that uh, that the ice conditions were changing and the, uh, uh, the stronger teams, the teams that performed well, made the adjustments fastest. One last point on the Women's Worlds, Hans, and that is to give a shout-out to Team Norway for their strong performance in Sweden. I think Kristen Skazlin, uh, in particular, was a little underestimated. Uh, she was described by some media outlets as little more than a mixed double specialist when she has, in fact, played in seven Women's Worlds and 14 Women's Europeans. So this was essentially an experienced team that played well and got on a run that led to a silver medal. Yeah, no doubt. And you mentioned Kristen and... I think she is, you know, well known to the curling world now because of her Olympic medals and mixed doubles. But I think what that's given her is confidence. You know, she you know, now she's always had the shot making ability, but 
revels now in the big shot. And, uh, and I think that's really helped her team in, uh, in four person curling. So yeah, great week for that team. They played well, uh, you know, finished second in the round Robin. So, you know, they were certainly deserving finalists. They had a great week. All right, Hans, let's move on to the topic at hand for today, the men's world championship taking place next week in Ottawa. We have to start with Team Adina of Sweden, who, not unlike Team Tiranzoni, have made a habit of winning world championships, uh, looking to win their fifth straight worlds in Ottawa. Now, it hasn't been all roses for Team Adina this season, especially for Nicholas Adina, who uh, had to get knee surgery after injuring himself in practice at a slam event earlier this season. But the team doesn't seem to have missed a beat. I mean, Nicholas is back now and playing fairly well. And uh, anyone wanting to end the world championship run by uh, Team Adina are really going to have to earn it. Yeah, I think the comparison to Silvana Terenzoni's run at the World Championships is pretty apt. Uh, all Nicholas does is win World Championships. And you're right, the injuries are always a concern with Nicholas. Managing uh, his injuries is, is a real challenge. But, you know, all they do is win at Worlds. And you'd have to rate them the favorites going in into, the, uh, into this World Men's Championship. And that's quite something when you've caught the likes of Brad Gaju and Yannick Schwaller and um, Bruce Mowat in the field. So that's a really, really uh, strong field, but Nicholas and his team are just pure class and I expect them to play well. Now we're going to touch on most of the teams in the field in this preview, Hans, but I think that the three teams that most people consider the favorites are Sweden's team Adin, Scotland's team Mowat, and Canada's team Gushu. As good and as evenly matched as these three teams are, can you perhaps shed some light on what the difference is between winning and losing on any given day when two of those three teams face each other on the ice? Well, there's really not a lot to choose between them because they're all so talented. Uh, They play each other a lot on the tour. Uh, They faced each other a lot at Olympics and World Championships. So, you know, on any given uh, game, and, you know, the team, any team could prevail. But, uh, you know, I think the Olympic final uh, between Mahmoud and Nadine was a good preview. You know, I think going into that, um, the curling world was thinking, okay, is there, you know, a new team potentially at the top of the international mountain? Um, and Nicholas and co prevailed in that one. So, uh, you know, they're the, they're the champs until somebody knocks them off the top of the mountain. And, uh, um, you know, Brad Guzhu's team, you know, got a team member this year and uh, Ryan reunited with EJ on the uh, uh, on the team as well as the alternate. And so um, Brad, I'm sure, has got uh, victory in his sights as well in a, in a home tournament. So it should be really fantastic. But, yeah, back to the question, you know, what's it take for one of these teams to beat the other teams? You know, it's taking advantage of what's probably not even a half miss. It's probably like a quarter miss that your opponent is making and capitalizing. So uh, they're that good. I think it's fair to say, Hans, that Team Retornaz of Italy will not sneak up on anyone at the Worlds in Ottawa. Not after winning bronze at last year's Worlds, winning another bronze at the Euros, and coming to Canada to win one of the slam events. Do you think that this team could potentially run the gauntlet this week and find themselves at the top of the podium at the end of the week? Well, I think they'll they'll be in the thick of the hunt for making the playoffs. And if you make the playoffs, it's a new tournament and anything can happen. So uh, Joel and his team, it's a similar situation that Stefania had. You know, now as uh, Italian curling representatives, even though 
this world championships doesn't count for Olympic qualification. They know that Italy's in and the Italian curling program will be competing in, um, in 2026. So that takes some of the pressure off and they can focus fully on, you know, really a four year climb towards that uh, tournament. So I expect Joel and his team to, to play really, really well. You mentioned that they've won a slam now. Um, they're always in the, in the playoff picture in any tournament they play in. So, um, you know, I, I, I think they'll go well. Um, you know, it's a tough tournament, but uh, their commitment to improvement is really impressive. Two teams that are under the radar a little bit right now and likely relishing the fact that they are under the radar are Team Schwaller of Switzerland, who are in their first season in this new lineup, and Team Schuster of the United States. Do you think that being under the radar a little plays into the hands of these two experienced and quality teams? Yeah, it's um, you know Benoit Schwartz is one of my favorite shot makers on earth. The guy when he's on his game is unconscious and and uh, almost unbeatable. So I'm going to be interested to see how Team Schwaller goes. Uh, I expect them to play uh, really strongly. And John Schuster, yeah, he nothing he likes better than being you know called the underdog in any event. So. Um, you know, it's, they've got a track record that uh, says that they're going to be strong and they're going to, you know, they have no fear. If there's any team, you know, I, I don't want to say that, that Nicholas Sedin would fear any team in this field, but if you go back and look at the head-to-head record of John Schuster versus Nicholas Sedin, uh, John's got a pretty healthy win percentage there. So if there's any team in the field that would be a real threat head-to-head to Nicholas, it might be John Schuster. So, it's going to be a really cool tournament. Um, There's so many good teams, just as it was in the women's field. So the curling in Ottawa should be outstanding. The other three European teams in the field in Ottawa, Hans, are Germany, Turkey, and Norway. Do you see a path to the playoffs for any of these three teams? I know that the one team that might stick out above the others a little bit in this group are the Norwegians who came to Canada earlier this year and reached the semifinals at one of the slams. Yeah, it'll be tough for any of those teams to make the playoffs, but because the competition is so strong. Um, but the Norwegian team of those three will be interesting, you know, very young. So there's a lot of um, upside potential and a high ceiling and uh, a curling pedigree in the, in the Ramsville uh, bloodline that's beyond compare. So uh, I think they'll go well. Um, and Karyo's from Turkey, the first time that... Uh, uh, a, a Turkish men's team has made it to this level. Um, you know, it's going to be a big climb for them and it'll be a big learning experience for them, but they can play as well. Uh, they've been in Canada preparing uh, for the tournament, but yeah, it'll, it'll be challenging for any of those three teams to make the playoffs, but the Norwegian team, it'll be interesting to see they're, they're a team with a, with a big future. What can you tell us about the teams representing Japan and Korea at the Worlds, Hans? I know that both teams competed in the Pan Continental Championships earlier this year, where Korea fared really well, going 6-1 and one in the round robin and losing to Canada's Brad Gushu in the gold medal game. Well, yeah, you mentioned Team Korea. Uh, through the round robin phase and the early playoff phase at the Pan Continentals, they look really, really strong. Um, they got demolished in the final, but uh, they are they're talented. So um, they could be one of those teams that, you know, if you're thinking that there's a team in the back half of the round robin, that's got a chance to sneak into that sixth playoff spot that you weren't expecting. um, They might be that team. Um, And uh, team Japan, likewise, um, 
uh, a new combination at this level, but an you know, experienced team in Japan, um, they will uh, they'll compete strongly as well. Uh, but if I had to, uh, if you had to ask me now, which of those two teams will will place higher? I'd have to say Korea. Uh, but to the Japanese team, um, they will they'll they'll compete well and uh, they'll be in the hunt. Last but certainly not least, uh, Hans, uh, a team close to your heart will be in Ottawa as Team New Zealand qualified for the Worlds at last fall's Pan-Continental Championship. Uh, this will be a first men's Worlds appearance for much of the team. Can you tell us a little bit about them and also what would make it a good week at the Worlds in Ottawa for Team New Zealand? Well, we talked about this Norwegian team as a, as a young team with a high ceiling and I put Team New Zealand into the same category um and they're all in their early 20s um for a young team from a place like New Zealand they've actually got quite a lot of international experience on that team they've uh, competed and had some success at world juniors level uh, competed at world mixed doubles level many of the team so um this isn't you know deer in the headlights first international curling experience but obviously you know a huge step up for them as a foursome uh, to compete in in world men's um I think success for the, you know, Anton will, he's fearless <laughs> and uh, he'll be fun to watch. I think the fans in Ottawa will like this team and uh, very quickly take them under their wings. They're, they're fun to watch. They play an aggressive uh, and entertaining style of the game. And, uh, you know, I think they'll, they'll sneak some wins in there. So um, I think a good week for them, Anton will be, uh, he'll be thinking playoffs. <laughs> But um, uh, they're going to be measuring themselves up. They've got the 2026 Olympics in their sights. Um, that entire team is going to locate themselves in North America for the next Northern Hemisphere competitive curling season. So their commitment is really, really serious. They're really uh, committed as a unit to getting to the top. And uh, that's great to see. So uh, a great debut for this team at this level. And I'm sure looking forward to seeing them on the ice in Ottawa. And finally, Hans, as you know, I don't do predictions on this podcast, but I always ask you if there is a team that might be under the radar heading into Worlds who could potentially make a run in Ottawa. I think I know where you're going to go with this because you hinted on it during the interview, but let's see where you go. Yeah, that's a tough one, um, as ever. But you're right, I did touch on it. And it's more of a hunch than anything else. I mean, the the easier answer to this type of thing would be something like, okay, yeah, next water. But um, I'm going to say Korea. Uh, I'm going to say that uh, the Korean team um, could surprise, and it'll be interesting to see if they can sustain the same kind of level that they showed uh, at the pan-continental level. Um, and, uh, but it'll be in tough. It's a fantastic field, and uh, the fans in Ottawa are in for an absolute treat. My second guest this week is Coach Reed Carruthers, who joined me for an insightful conversation about the week that was for Team Anderson at the 2023 World Women's Championship in Sweden. Reed, I want to take you back to the very start of the Women's Worlds, where you got off to a good start defeating a tough Team Hasselborg of Sweden, playing in front of a home crowd. Uh, it had to be encouraging, uh, uh, an encouraging start for the team, especially against a team as talented as the Swedes. Yeah, so like obviously playing Sweden uh, in the first game is is never easy, especially being at the home country. Um, you know they had played the earlier draw, so got used to the ice a little bit. You know the nerves were definitely uh, were definitely there for us, but the girls played well. Um, but yeah, just like against uh, against the U.S. in our next game, we came out like a little bit flat and. Um, 
you know, kind of let the ice conditions, uh, you know, fluster us. Like, you know, it was, it was something that we, we had trouble mastering right out of the gates. And, um, yeah, you know, it just kind of set us up for that up and down week. I actually wanted to uh, touch on the ice conditions in Sweden for a moment to read. Uh, there were mixed reports coming back from the event with sources from countries like Switzerland describing and uh, describing it as excellent ice, while other folks were mentioning that it was an inconsistent playing surface. You were right at ice level, Reed. Was it a case of the ice being inconsistent, or did some countries simply adjust to the ice conditions more quickly than others? Well, yeah, like, you know, obviously Switzerland managed the ice conditions way better than what we did. I. I wouldn't say the ice was bad. It definitely wasn't bad. I've I, I've played on ice that was way worse than what we were facing. It was it was definitely decent. Um, you know, was it the best we've ever seen? No. But um for us we uh I guess the biggest thing is we you know, we battled it rather than trying to conquer it. You know, it's not for not for lack of trying anyways, but we just uh, you know, it's almost like the mindset of uh it, it got the best of us best of us at times. So how do you address that in an event like the Worlds, Reed? I know that teams such as Team Anderson go into big events with a plan of how they want to approach different games and often have different strategies depending on the opponent that they're going to deal with or play against. But when a team struggles the way Team Anderson did in adjusting to the ice at the Worlds in Sweden, is it is it easy is it easy to reset midstream in an event as people seem to think it is when you're uh, when you've got a plan and a strategy in place and then you've got an approach planned out for the week and then all of a sudden things aren't working out the way you had hoped is it as easy to kind of reset midweek as people seem to think it is well yeah you know there was lots of armchair quarterbacks throughout the uh, throughout the entire week um you know and for us uh you know the games the games it's not exactly like a an event where you're playing one game a day or pretty much every day you're playing two games uh 10 end games and you know with the uh, matching rocks in the evenings and whatnot like it's it's busy so you know for us uh it was a matter of trying to you know master it in that moment and te- taking each game at a time because it kind of seemed like uh you know the ice changed from draw to draw but a lot of it you know it was, really wasn't the ice maker's fault like we're in a massive building um massive building and it looked like there might be some sort of uh, airflow issues because of how big the building was and then throwing the fact that it was raining one day uh you know there was high high humidity i like i thought they did a great job uh based on you know what they were what they were presented with Reed, Team Anderson is one of those teams that are next to unbeatable when they get in one of their famous grooves, but it's hard to get in a groove when they're consistently trying to figure out the ice from draw to draw. Is it fair to say that their struggles with the ice prevented the team from ever really feeling comfortable out there and making a long week appear even longer? Yeah, you know, and that's, there's lots of reflecting that we'll all need to do to figure out, you know, put our finger on it as to what happened. Like, I'm still only a couple days removed from the event, um... You know, I haven't been able to do my own debrief, uh, my own personal debrief as to what went on, as well as have that with the team. But yeah, we definitely didn't have uh, have that same momentum that we've had in some of the other bigger championship events, uh, like the Scotties, where you know it felt like we were rolling. You know, there was flashes of it here, but not uh, not the same consistency throughout. 
All right, let's fast forward to the semifinal game against Norway, uh, Reed. Uh, I'm going to be honest, I think most Canadian curling fans uh, probably uh, made a sigh of relief uh, when they saw the draw uh, for the semis, with Canada not having to face either the hometown Swedes or playing against a Swiss team that seemed unbeatable. Uh, the Norwegians played well all week, so it was never going to be easy against them, but as the game wore on against the Norwegians, which was a, a, a back-and-forth affair, it certainly looked like the ice got challenging again for both teams. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, for me, you know, we played that team earlier in the week and had an absolute battle with them. We knew what we were getting into. Uh, they're a team that, you know, likes to keep it relatively open uh, and give themselves a chance late in the event or late in the game. And that's certainly what uh, they did all week. And they they made some big shots uh, when they needed to. And their skipper, Last Rock Thrower, was playing great. Um, so for us, you know, I the actual approach to the game I you know I wish we went a little bit more aggressive at them um especially because we had played earlier in the day uh and they had rested so I think you know it's a bit of a tactical error on on my behalf or the team's behalf that we didn't go a little bit more aggressive at them uh to put that pressure on them you know they were they were playing with confidence and we kind of allowed them to play their game uh, and in the end, uh, you know, we've made a couple errors in that game that cost us. We had a big three that we gave up in the fifth end, and then obviously we were playing aggressive late in the game uh, to try to get the force in the ninth end, and, you know, Kerry made a nice draw, and then their skip made a beautiful double. So, you know, it's one of those things that uh, if I were to look back on it, you know, I... I just regret not going a little bit more aggressive at them earlier in the game. Now, in most team sports, uh, read football, basketball, hockey, the coach is in constant uh, contact with his players and can change the strategy quickly by chatting with players when they're on the bench. It seems a little tougher in curling, especially at Worlds, where the coaching benches are a little bit more removed from the action than they are at a Scotty or a Slam, and you can't even talk to your team during the opponent's timeout. How difficult uh, is it to make in-game adjustments as a curling coach at an event like the World Championship in curling? Uh, well, it's it's different every event we go to. Um, you know, at the at the slams, I'm able to call two timeouts uh, from the bench and go running out there without the team even wanting me to come out sometimes. Um, you know, and then an event like the Scotties, we have two timeouts and I can signal them. I can interact with the team in between ends. Uh, and then at the Worlds, you know, there's only one timeout. The coaching bench is further up and there's less time in between ends. So the, the amount of interaction is obviously less. You know, so for, for this team in, in the events that I've come to uh, to work with them, this was the least I was able to be involved. So, you know, I'm not saying that that made a difference, but it was different. Um, and yeah, like the team... I think when the team needed me to to pump them up and 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 support them, you know, I wasn't able to do that as as much as I would in other events. No, I know read that some people frown upon bronze medals in curling, especially in Canada. But how important was a win for Team Anderson in the bronze medal game after a tough week, especially since they ended up having to face the hometown Swedes in the in that bronze medal game, and there was probably a great atmosphere in the crowd. Well. Yeah, to me, to me, that's the whole adage of, you know, we're not happy at the bronze is crazy. I remember how thrilled I was to see Gushu and Nichols and those guys, you know, wrapping up the, the dynasty quad that they had uh, with a bronze medal in the Olympics uh, and being so proud of them. I, I don't know why it would be any different for, uh, you know, our team or any of the women's teams that go to the world championship. Um, yeah, so for us, like, you know, it was important. You know, we had a we had a huge mental 
let down Saturday night, losing the losing the semifinal, and to be able to uh, have a have a tough team debrief about what we did right and what we did wrong, and then show up the next day firing was exactly what I could ask for in a coach. How do you approach a debrief after a tough loss like the semifinal game, Reed? Do you just let the players talk? Do you structure the debrief so that you talk specifically about strategy and other technical things to work on so as not to let it get too emotional? Or do you let the players say what they feel the need to say in that very situation? Uh, a, a bit of everything that you just said. You know, um, a bit of trade secrets too, right? Like what what's needed for this team in each moment kind of changes, right? So... Um, you know, I have to kind of read the room and guide the conversation. And I would just say that this team is very reflective. Um, they're very good at, um, you know, taking ownership of, uh, what they did right and wrong. That includes myself. So, you know, there were some real honest, uh, individuals in the room. And, you know, with that being said, we were able to take that conversation and roll with it and just be better the next day. And I thought, our bond muddle game was probably our best performance all week. And finally, Reed, we'll step away from your coaching role and talk about an announcement your men's team made a few weeks ago, confirming that Brad Jacobs would be a full-time member of your team moving forward. Tell me about the decision and how pumped you are to join forces with an Olympic gold medalist. Yeah, well, I figured I needed to get a little Northern Ontario love on the team um, to help help our team out, right? So. Brad, uh, Brad being a guy that's my age, you know, I've played against him for years, all the way going back to, uh, you know, our early stages in the men's career, men's career. Um, you know, so we've, you know, we've been friends all along, but competitors for most of it. And uh, I've always admired his uh, passion for the game and obviously being one of the best last rock throwers uh, in the game, uh, seeing him, you know, basically taking a year off in the men's game, um, you know, he was the first person that came to mind when, when we made a player change. Um, so it, you know, I wasn't, wasn't sure whether or not it was going to work out, but we had that one, uh, slam where we curled together and it seemed to click and, uh, you know, we're both really excited about where this could take us. Last but certainly not least this week, I am joined by Emily Deshaen and Austin Snyder, who represented Canada in the World Junior Women's and World Junior Men's events, respectively, a few weeks ago in Germany. It was a difficult week for both Canadian teams from a win-loss perspective, but both teams represented our country with pride, and their experience in Germany will serve all of them very well, both on and off the curling ice for years to come. Austin, let's start with you. I believe this was your first time representing Canada at an international curling event. Uh, how did it feel to wear that maple leaf at the World Juniors in Germany? Yeah, no, I, I think uh, it's exactly that. It was a really cool experience for me personally, and I really enjoyed kind of the whole um, added pressure that, you know, comes with wearing the maple leaf, and it was just a, a extreme honor to uh, represent Canada for sure. Austin, uh, talk to me about the added pressure of wearing that maple leaf on your back. There always seems to be so many expectations placed on the shoulders of Canadian teams in curling. Is it something you felt as a player in Germany? Um, I don't really, I don't really think so necessarily. I mean, you know, the nice thing was we did have almost a full year to prepare for the Worlds, and you know, as we kind of worked through the season and it kind of became more of a reality, and as we got closer to the event, I feel like a lot of that initial pressure that I thought we were going to be facing kind of started to fade away. Um, but it was kind of turned into kind of a competitive fire, like, okay, we're representing Canada. Let's give it a good go. 
In your case, Emily, this was the third time that you represented Canada, I believe. Uh, tell me about being able to represent Canada at a World Juniors just a few months after you'd qualified Canada for the event by winning the World Junior B event. Um, I think it was our season goal was to ultimately represent Canada in Germany. And after we qualified uh, Canada for that, um, we were all very excited and we just wanted to go out there and represent Canada, but also like play for ourselves because when we were in Finland, uh, we had that added pressure of needing to qualify. So I think playing in Germany was a completely different experience of kind of just playing a little bit more freely. So take me back to that B Championship for a moment, Emily, and talk about having to qualify Canada for the World Juniors. Were you feeling more pressure in that event than you did at the World Juniors themselves? Uh, exactly. Um, when in Finland, we initially, it was very stressful and very nerve wracking just playing throughout. But once we got more and more comfortable, um, throughout the week, we kind of just played for ourselves towards the end. Once we knew that we had qualified, uh, Canada for world juniors in Germany. So we kind of wanted to carry that feeling over into Germany. And we knew that we played super well in Finland and we knew what it was like representing Canada, although it was at a different event with different pressure, but playing in Germany was a whole different experience. And I think each of us very much enjoyed it. Austin, now your team got off to a bit of a rough start in Germany, at least from a wins and losses perspective. Looking back, was there a key moment in one of those early games that could have changed the momentum for your team if things had transpired differently? Yeah, no, it's interesting that you say that. And as I'm reflecting upon the week, I kind of think back to, uh, I believe it was game two against the Swiss. And we had a pretty good game. We'd, you know, we'd stayed in it um, for most of it. And we were kind of, we were chasing a little bit, but we were kind of right there and had an outside chance. And we ended up uh, forcing the extra getting two and 10. And we were set up pretty good in the extra end. He just made a really nice little run there to get the win. And I think if that shot's missed and we get the win there, I think that might've catapulted us a little bit sooner, but um, yeah, that's just curling. The same question for you, Emily. Uh, your team got off to a bit of a rough start as well from a win and loss perspective. Was there a moment in one of those early games where had it played out differently, it could have turned the week around for you? I think for us, we kind of got down early in a few of our first few games. So we were needing to battle back right from the get-go. Um, so that kind of made it a little bit more challenging. But at the end of each game, we were playing 10 ends and making the other team make their last shot. So it might not have started the games how we wanted to, but we definitely stayed with it. But there was one game where we had like just ticked a guard on one of my last rock on the my first rock in the last end, but if we had just got by it, we might have won and then definitely would have carried forward with momentum, but unfortunately we ended up losing, but once we got the first win we knew that we could get more. It was just a little bit tougher. Now, your first win of the week, Emily, was against the Scottish team that ended up winning the gold medal. After that big win, did things shift for your team at all? Were you hoping that it might allow you and the team to go on a run from that point? Yeah, definitely. Uh, winning that first game of the week was an amazing feeling, getting the first win. Um, it was a very well-played game by both teams, and we definitely had momentum in the game, which was a little bit 
different, I would say. But beating them in that game was huge for us. Also, we knew that we could beat them because we did play them at the World Junior Bs um, and did uh, beat them in the final. But just ultimately getting the first win definitely carried momentum forward and knowing that we could win more games if we just played to how we wanted to play. Austin, I realize that other than enjoying the experience, the biggest goal for Canadian teams at international curling events is reaching the playoffs and battling for the podium. When things were not going as planned for your team early on, were you able to stay focused on playing one game at a time, or did you start thinking about making sure you avoided relegation for Canada? Yeah, I mean, I don't think really at any point, at least in the first half of the event, we were even thinking about it. We were just trying to, you know, rifle off that first win and like you had alluded to, try and gain some momentum. I think that was big uh, for us once we kind of got that first win. But um, no, even at 0-4, although our backs were against the wall, we never really gave up. And um, I don't think mentally we were ever out of it. Um, obviously, once you get that fifth loss, you know, you kind of know that you need some major help to even have a have a chance. But um, yeah, I think once we had five losses, it was just trying to trying to do the best we could in the last couple of games, and you know, try and try and get as many wins as possible. And uh, that's kind of where our focus had, sw- uh, had switched once we had that fifth loss. So, what about you, Emily? After those early losses, were you able to focus on one game at a time, or were you starting to feel some internal pressure in your efforts to qualify Canada for next year's World Juniors? Uh, we definitely weren't really thinking about the relegation too much, like towards the beginning of the week or I guess throughout the week at all. Um, we just wanted to go out and represent Canada, but also just play well for ourselves. And you never know when you're going to get the chance to represent Canada again. So I think we all just wanted to play freely and just represent everybody. And relegation really wasn't on our minds. Um, but yeah, it was it was a truly amazing feeling just playing out there and not thinking about what might happen next year. I'm so happy to hear you guys say that, uh, Austin and Emily. Uh, curling is a sport, and uh, even some of the best teams in the world have events where things don't go the way they had hoped. Uh, I, I'm happy to hear that you were able to, to focus on playing and on enjoying the honour and experience of wearing the Maple Leaf at an international curling event. Now, speaking of experience, Austin, uh, can you tell me what the week was like for you? What kind of experience was it to play at a World Juniors? Yeah, no, I mean, the experience was a 10 out of 10, I you know, tell everyone that asked because, you know, obviously people that maybe hadn't been in that position before or hadn't experienced maybe curling overseas, they were curious as to what the experience was like. And it was really, truly, you know, very unique in that, you know, being across the pond and, and playing in a different country, you know, has, has some differences to it. And it was really enjoyable for me personally. And I think, um, myself and and the team was able to take a lot of things away from that week. Um, and going forward, I think it'll make us better, both as individual curlers and as a team. What about you, Emily? As I mentioned, you'd represented Canada before, but is it fair to say that your experience in Germany will only serve you well as you move forward both in curling and in life? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think each time I've represented Canada, um, they've all felt slightly different, but this one is... A memory that I'm not going to forget for a while and there's people back home that are asking me they're like oh how's Germany 
And I immediately have the biggest smile on my face and I'm like, it was in the best experience I've ever had. And just sharing everything about my experience uh, just brings back even more memories. And I think our whole team uh, definitely learned a lot uh, individually and as a team, both on and off the ice about ourselves. So representing Canada, I think, is truly an honor for all of us. But just getting the chance to represent Canada was great. So typically there are a lot of Canadians at curling events held in Europe. Were you able to meet other Canadians while in Germany? I think we all had many uh, family and friends that flew over to support us. I know the boys team, there was, I don't remember how many, I think there was 20 people from the Whitby Curling Club that came over to support. So it was just great to see both teams coming together with each support systems that we all have and just cheering everybody on was an amazing feeling. Austin, you touched on something earlier in the interview that was one of the talking points in the Canadian curling community while you were in Germany, and that's the fact that you qualified for the Worlds almost a year before getting to compete in the event. If you were given the choice, Austin, would you prefer playing Worlds a month or two after Canadians when it might be a little easier to maintain your mojo than it is over 11 months? Or do you think those 11 months may have benefited you in some way? Yeah, no, I think there's uh, there's there's two sides to the coin, I think. And, you know, looking back for us personally, I think we really enjoyed the fact that we had all this time to train, to get better individually and as a team, um, just particularly with this team, because we hadn't had a whole lot of experience together. Um, I mean, the, these four, or I guess the five of us only really came together about midway through last year. So for us, it was really nice to be able to have you know, almost a full season together to be able to play and kind of, you know, battle through the tough times and kind of learn some adversity because for us personally, you know, we'd only seen success. So um, looking back on it, I, I, I liked having that amount of time. Like you alluded to, though, it can be difficult in the sense, you're, you know, you're trying to peak 11 months later, but, you know, regardless of if it was a month from from the time we had won, three months, 11 months, you still got to go out there and perform and, um, I think we definitely came there as ready as we could have been. Emily, one of the reasons uh, why they moved the Canadian juniors later into the season a few years ago was because of concerns that for most juniors who did not qualify for nationals, their seasons effectively ended at provincials in December back then. Now, I'm just curious to know if top junior teams like yours actually play more events now in the second half of the season other than just provincials and nationals if you do qualify for nationals. I definitely think this season I was curling a lot more because I was playing on um, two teams. But after Christmas, I think for us, there was only one junior event that we were able to play in. So I definitely think if they want to make the junior season longer, I definitely think they should be adding more junior events, either in the area or in another province that will have teams want to go to them just so then you're ha- you're playing against those other teams that you might be seeing at nationals. But this year, I don't think there was too many, but I definitely think they should have more. Austin, this interview will probably be posted after the Canadian University and College Championships, but I wanted to point out that you've been pulling double duty this season. Not only did you represent Canada at the World Juniors, but at the time of recording, you're about to head off to the Canadian College Championship representing Humber College. Yeah, no, it's uh it's been it's been pretty good. The nice thing about 
um, varsity curling, both, well, I can speak to college, not necessarily university, but it's, it kind of fits in nicely. Um, you know, there's pretty super accommodating for, you know, competitive team comes first and, and school comes second as far as teams go. Um, so it hasn't been a huge commitment. And I know all the guys on the team have their own competitive commitment. So it kind of works out well, but um, you know, kind of a similar thing. You just kind of come together, come provincial national time and, and try and do your best. And that's what we're aiming to do this week. Finally, Emily, if you had one piece of advice for the next team that will represent Canada at a world juniors, what would it be? I think when you're there to uh, play for yourselves and not let the outside pressure of Canada and rep- and having the belief on your back and what anybody else might be saying when you're there, just to enjoy the moment and take it all in because you never know when you're going to get the experience again and be in that situation. So take it all in and enjoy every moment of it. What about you, Austin? What advice would you have for the next team that represents Canada at a World Juniors? My biggest thing would be just to not get too caught up in the moment of where you are. Just you know, take it for what it is. And at the end of the day, you know, you're going up against some of the best teams in the world. And all the teams that are there definitely deserve to be there. And they're there for a reason. And, you know, there's no free free spaces on the bingo card anymore. Um, at a world championship especially. And, uh, yeah, that's something we definitely learned. And that does it for this week's episode. A huge thank you to Hans Fraunlaub, Reed Carruthers, Emily Deshan, and Austin Snyder for joining me this week. Also, don't forget to check out our partners and friends in the Curling Podcast Network, the Two Girls in the Game podcast, the Rock Logic podcast, and the Curling Legends podcast. I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership.